0: Glad that everyone is here. If you can finish up uh, doing your hugs and handshakes. That would be awesome. And uh, when you're ready, go ahead and head back to your seat when you're ready. Welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Glad you're here. Glad for the energy. All right. We're going to go ahead and uh, dig into our text this morning. So kids, at this point, feel free to go ahead and head off to kids' church. I think... Uh got some snacks and some goodies and a good lesson for you guys. Um, for those of you who are not kids, uh, feel free to stick around and open up uh, your Bibles to the book of Judges. We uh, continue to make our way through the book of Judges and we will be in chapter 6 this morning. So it's always a good thing to bring your Bible. Judges chapter 6 is where we will be. If you don't have your text, no worries, it will be up on the screen. Again, Judges chapter 6 is where we're going to be. And uh, this morning, we get into the story of the fourth judge. Remember, there are six major judges in the book of Judges, and Gideon is going to be our fourth judge, and we'll do Gideon in a couple parts. So we'll kind of have the introduction uh, to Gideon this morning, then we'll have the conclusion next next Sunday. All right, uh, let's do this. If you, would, uh, if you would just pray with me r- real fast, we're going to pray, and we're going to get into God's Word. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we can be here and that we can sing songs to you, um, that you are uh, good to us in the good times and the bad, and that you're faithful, and that we can bless your name uh, in good times and bad. Father, we're grateful uh, just for your text, for your word. It's holy and infallible and uh, rightly preserved for us, and we're so grateful that you have spoken to us, and Father, you give us stories and uh, commandments and uh, all of these things for our good, for our edification, God, that we might honor you and find joy in you. Father, I pray as we Look at this fourth judge, uh, Gideon. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that your spirit would be among us, teaching us, uh, giving us uh, hearts to obey, uh, wills that are uh, submissive and soft to you. And Father, I pray in particular this morning that you would teach us how we can be effective people, how you prepare us oftentimes to be useful and effective as you have in the life of Gideon. And so we ask for your present uh, presence and we ask for your power among us. And we ask it in the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Judges 6 this morning. I want to begin with a quick story. Uh, there was a boy um, who was uh, in school, and uh, this particular young man wasn't a very good student. Um, I don't know if you can relate to that. Uh, he he didn't really try hard. It's not that he wasn't smart. He just didn't really try very hard. He wasn't the best of students. Um, he didn't work hard. He never did his homework. Uh, the dog often ate his homework, those kind of things. He really didn't care much about school. Um, he is what you would call an underachiever. And so he went to school one day and, uh, the teacher was uh, taking up the homework and he, as, uh, normal, didn't do his homework, didn't even try. And the teacher, it was so fed up at that point, uh, that she said, uh, to the young man, I'm tired of doing this. And so what I want you to do is get up, uh, and stand at the chalkboard and write a hundred times, I am an underachiever. And so the young man, uh, was submissive to his teacher and got up and began to write on the talk board, I am an underachiever. And so after doing this for several minutes, the young boy got tired and said to his teacher, I'm not an underachiever. You are an over expector. This morning, we're going to see kind of what I would consider a classic story of God using an underachiever. Uh, someone who is um, not someone like the judges we've seen in the past that you would anticipate that God would use. Someone who is fearful, someone whose faith is not the best. And yet we see God using this over, excuse me, this underachiever uh, to do great and marvelous things. And really, uh, w- our, the focus of our text this morning is how God uh, prepared this underachiever by the name of Gideon to be used of him. And so this morning, what I hope we can do is kind of go through our text in Judges 6. There are three main sections in the text. And what I hope we can do is see three, I've called them principles for preparation, uh, three principles uh, for God to prepare us to be useful for him. And so the focus of our text this morning is on being prepared to be used of God. And what we're going to see is that God in the life of Gideon centered his preparation around two altars. That's why I've entitled uh, the sermon, The Two Altars. Um, And so we're going to see the first altar um, and Gideon's uh, preparation for that, and then we'll see the second altar that Gideon builds to God. Uh, the story begins in verse 1 of chapter 6, and really, uh, uh, like most stories, this is kind of an introduction, if you will. And so verses 1 through 10, we see uh, the stage is being set. God is calling Gideon uh, because of the Midianite oppression. If you recall, throughout the book of Judges, uh, God's people sin against him, and so uh, they disobey him, and he brings about foreign oppression uh, to oppress his people, and so that's how our story begins this morning. So let's just go ahead and read through this, kind of get our background ready, and then we'll see. Uh, the story of the two altars. Let's read this together in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. Verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites... And the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. Moving on. And Israel, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the, of the Midianites, verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And he concludes in verse 10 by saying this, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so we see just a real quick introduction. I don't want to comment too much on this, but setting the stage, we have Israel disobedient again, the fourth cycle. We see God saying, okay, you're going to be disobedient. I'm going to send the Midianites to come against you. And essentially what we see is the, Midia, uh, the Midianites were kind of like nomads. They didn't, they, they didn't have a permanent home. They uh, traveled around. And essentially what the Midianites did is they came up against Israel right around harvest time. And they took all of the crops, um, all of the best of, uh, of the livestock, and they Oppressed Israel in such a way, and the text, interestingly enough, tells us that Israel was so afraid of these raiders, if you will, who would come in and steal the best of the land, that they would take their produce and they would hide away in the caves and in the mountains. They would they were they they literally lived in a state. Of perpetual fear. Interestingly enough, they cry out to the Lord as they had in the past. And unlike in the past, uh, to where in the past God said, I, I'll raise up a deliverer from you. Instead, what they did is uh, they received a prophet. And God essentially sends a prophet to say, you've disobeyed my voice. I'm rebuking you. And there's not at all a promise of deliverance. And so we see a a digression here. So we see kind of the stage is set. God has rebuked his people. Uh, God's people are being oppressed. And there's no promise of a deliverer. But God in his grace is going to, in spite of his people's fault, raise up a deliverer for them. And so we get into the story of a man by the name of Gideon, which starts in verse 11. And so in verses 11 through 24, we kind of get the main, the second main section. And I've entitled it, the first altar. Here, as we get into this section, we're going to see this section culminate with Gideon building an altar in worship and in submission to God. But before he does that, before he finally submits to God, God's call on his life, we see that he's going to give a series of excuses. Three excuses, in fact. And so, just to set the scene, this is where we're going. God's going to call a savior, a deliverer, by the name of Gideon. So let's go ahead. And jump into that. We'll read this, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Verse 11. The story continues. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite. Abiz- there we go. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Just a quick point here. Uh, interestingly enough, we see that Gideon is living in fear. He is uh, trying to get uh, press out the wheat, but he's not doing it on a, an open hill, a hilltop like they normally would. He's instead in kind of a low area uh, where they would uh, produce wine. And so the point is, is that Gideon... He's afraid. He's living in fear. He's fearful of the Midianites. And here we have the angel of the Lord coming to him. And with much irony, we, he says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And he's not at all, at this point, a mighty man of valor. It would be like God coming to me and saying, uh, The Lord is with you, O mighty handy man. And all of you who know me well, you would know that the angel is lying. (laughs) Because I'm not at all a handyman. This uh, This is what the angel is saying. But the beauty of it is he sees Gideon, not for what he is, but for what he's going to become with God's help. Moving on, verse 13. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recorded to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. We see excuse number one. Moving on, verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? So the Lord is persistent. He says, I'm sending you. I will strengthen you. Go on. We get the second excuse here. Verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, which is the tribe that he is a part of. And I am the least in my father's house. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So we see the second excuse. I am the weakest. You got the wrong man. And the Lord says, I'm going to be with you. Verse 17. And he said to him, if now, this is Gideon speaking, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. Show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Verse 18. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you, and he said, "I will stay until you return." So here we go. here we have Gideon. He's giving his third excuse. He says, "I want a sign from you. I want to know that this is really you speaking, God." And so I'm going to come. I'm going to give you a present. I'm going to make you a meal. And so just stay right there. And so uh, with much grace and mercy, the angel says, "Sure. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you." And he said he would. Verse nineteen. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. Verse 20. Continuing on. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him underneath the terabith and presented them. Verse 20. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And so he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Moving on, we see Gideon's reaction. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Yeah, you think so? You you know, okay, that's kind of like a dust statement, right? And Gideon said, alas... O Lord God, from, for, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Verse 23. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Peace be to you. Do not fear, for you shall not die. Rightly so. Gideon recognizes who he's actually talking with, and he's like, Please don't kill me, God. And he says, Chill out. It's going to be okay. Verse 24. Then Gideon built an altar, the first altar. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord. And called it, the Lord is peace. Because the Lord said, peace to you. To this day, it still stands at Orpha, which belongs to the Abzerite. Sorry, that's a tough one. So we see kind of the story of the first altar here. So what I want us to do is kind of uh, just notice a few points of, of the story. We've seen uh, the story culminates with Gideon building a first altar in submission to God, recognizing that God is indeed calling him and submitting to God's call on his life. I think we see the first principle though, something I really want to focus on here. And, and again, I called it principles for preparation. How, what can we learn from Gideon? How God prepared Gideon for service, for usefulness for him. I think the The first principle that we see in the life of Gideon is that we have to get past our excuses. We have to get past our excuses. The bulk of the story here in this first section is Gideon giving a series of three excuses, saying, God, here's the reasons why you can't use me. Here are the reasons why I'm not going to be effective. Here are the reasons why you have got the wrong guy. And he begins in verse 13. Uh, Again, we're not going to go back there. So if you have your text, verse 13. We see the first excuse, and the first excuse is is essentially, he says, God, the mess that we're in as a people is all your fault. It's all your fault, God. Notice what he says in verse 13. He replies to the angel, and he says, please, sir, notice, he's blaming God for his circumstances. Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his, uh, of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And then this is what he concludes by saying. This is his conclusion. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And so the first excuse that Gideon had to get over, and I would say the first excuse that many of us have to get over and uh, being useful for God is the fact that, We say, God, it's all of your fault. It's all of your fault. You see that throughout Gideon. He says, well, sure, if God is with us, it sure doesn't look like it. My circumstances don't really look like what you're saying, God. You say that you're with us, but look around. It doesn't look like you're doing much. Why aren't you doing all of the miraculous things that you used to do in the past, is what he says. And then he he gives this conclusion. The Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forsaken us. It's your fault. It's your fault all of our crops are being taken. It's your fault that I'm threshing out wheat here in my wine press. It's your fault that I'm living in fear. God, it's all your fault. And the terrible irony of this is that it's very clear that it's not God's fault at all. It's his fault, and it's the nation's fault. He says, God, you have forsaken us. But the text throughout Judges clearly says that the people of Israel forsook God. And that's why they were in the mess that they were in. And so the first excuse that Gideon had to get over is, it's all your fault, God. It's the blame game. It's not taking any responsibility for the state that we're in. And so I want to bring it home a little bit to you and me. How do we do this? How do we play the blame game with God? How do we say, God, it's all of your fault. The mess that my life is, it's your fault. And we don't take responsibility. Maybe, uh... Maybe you're here this morning and you are in a bit of a, a, bit of a financial mess. Um, your credit is no good. Um, you're broke. Uh, things have not uh, been going very well. You have massive credit card debt. You don't live on a budget. Um, you're just in a mess and you say, God, why is it like this? It's all your fault. But we don't, we, don't, we don't look at ourselves that we don't live on a budget. We use credit cards when we shouldn't. We have massive debt. We live well above our means and we choose to blame God. Maybe your family life is a mess. Relationships at home are strained. Maybe with your spouse or with your kids or with your extended family. Uh, maybe in particular with your, with your uh, family at home. Uh, your relationship with kids are, are just not good. They're not respecting you. They're not honoring you. They're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They're not obeying you. They're hanging out with the wrong crowds. And you say, God, you've forsaken my family. God, you've forsaken us. It's all of your fault. But when we look at it, We never modeled what it was like to be a good mom and dad. There's yelling, constant fighting, unforgiveness between parents. We've modeled this before our kids. We never set clear boundaries with our kids. We never taught them right from wrong. We never uh, taught them what it was to honor God and live out our faith before them. We wanted to be their friends as opposed to being their parents. And we look at our situation and we say, God, it's all your fault. When in actuality, it's all of our fault. And so I don't know what... Circumstance you are in this morning, but I would guess that one big hurdle that we all have to face in life is this blame game saying, God, it's all your fault. And when we do that, instead of taking responsibility for what we have brought upon ourselves, it hinders our usefulness for God because we're blaming instead of fixing and serving him. We see the second excuse. Not only does Gideon say, it's all your fault, God. He also says, I just can't do it. God, I just can't do it. You have the wrong guy. And we see this in verse 15. Verse 15, he says this, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? I can't do it. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in all of my father's house. Essentially what he says here, is uh, you have the wrong guy. I'm not your hero. If you want someone to to fight with the Midianites, you're looking at the wrong guy. First of all, my clan, out of all the clans in Israel, is the weakest. So you shouldn't look here. Look elsewhere. But not only that, if you wanted to look at my clan, I am the weakest in my whole household. It it could imply that he's the youngest here. It's not exactly clear, but, uh, but the point is very clear. He's saying, I just can't do it. What you're asking me to do, God... I just can't do it. And I think we use this excuse as well. Not only do we blame God, but we say, God, I know that there are things that you want done for your kingdom. I know there are things that you want done in the church. I know there are things that you want done in my schools. I know that there are things that you want done in my community and with my neighbors. But you just have the wrong guy. You're, t- you're tapping the, the wrong guy on the shoulder. I just can't do it. Maybe you, th- you think, you know what, I just... I know we're supposed to you know, be sharing our faith and be living missionally, and we've been talking about that, but that's for the person next to me. I just can't do that. And and here's the reason why, God. I'm just shy. I'm naturally shy. I'm not a good talker like Moses. I I just can't do it. You you have the wrong guy. I'm just naturally shy. Maybe you say, God, I know I'm supposed to be leading my family spiritually, but I just can't do it. I don't know how to lead devotionals. I don't know jack squat about the Bible, I don't know how to pray, I don't know how to do this. You have the wrong guy, God. Or maybe it's a service role. You say, I can't teach, I can't lead, I can't help with Awanas, I can't do this, that, or the other, I just don't have the experience, I've never done it before. You've got the wrong guy. We often make this excuse and we say, I can't do it, God. But in actuality, what we're really saying is, God, I won't, I won't do it. Or, I can't do it. Or often, I just won't do it. And that's exactly what Gideon is saying. We've seen a couple excuses. He says, God, this is all your fault. It's all your fault. And then he says, okay, maybe it's our fault, but you have the wrong guy. I'm just not your guy. I can't do it. The third excuse that he says is is found in verse 17. And essentially he says... I need some proof, God. If you really want me to do this, if you really want me to obey you, if you really want me to fight against the Midianites, which I'm scared to death, obviously, here I am in a wine press. I'm scared to death. I need a little extra proof. I know you've told me three times, in fact, in the passage that you'll be with me, but that's just not good enough. Your word is just not good enough. I need a sign. Verse 17, he says this. If now I found favor in your eyes, he's speaking to the angel, then show me a sign. Show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Again, he has showed him, told him several times, I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. And then he says, but it's not enough. I need some evidence. I need some hard facts. I need some proof. But what he's really saying is, God, your word is not enough. Your word, your very clear word to me, Is not enough, and I think that we do this, bringing it home a little bit, is by demanding people to rubber stamp God's word. I think what this looks like in our life is when we hear a very clear command from God, Uh, we read a scripture, and you know it's one of those scriptures that you read it and you're like, it doesn't really mean that. Let's just keep reading. It's one of those kind of commands when you're like, oh. Did he really mean that? Because our culture says something absolutely different. So does God really mean that? Should I really arrange my life in this manner? It's this kind of thing. It's it's these kind of commands where God's word is so evidently clear. But we, like Gideon, say, I need proof. I want a little bit more than your word, God. I know it's clear. I need some evidence. And so what we do is we seek experts. Experts opinions we uh, look to our counselors and we say well i know this is what god says about how i'm supposed to arrange my marriage and my family life and my finances but i'm gonna god i'm gonna check with my counselor first is what we say or we talk to our pastor and it's a good thing to talk to your pastor um but i'm not the bible (laughs) and so if i ever say something that is opposite from the bible follow the bible don't follow me Not only that, but we say, well, I know that there are some recent books out there on the subject, and so I'm going to go look at what this author and that author has to say about it, instead of what the author of the book has to say about the matter. And we look for secondary sources, we look for proof, when God's word is so evidently clear to us, as it was with Gideon. And so what we've seen in this first section is, God says, you're the man, and Gideon says, Here are three reasons why I'm not the man. I'm giving you my excuses. Uh, I read an interesting article. Um, There was an insurance company by the name of Metropolitan Insurance Company. And uh, they uh, kind of did a report, and I I guess to be somewhat humorous, um, shared in their report some of the reasons, excuses, if you will, that people gave for some of the accidents that they had uh, had and were claiming on their policy. And so I'd like to share just a few of these um, interesting excuses. One man wrote in saying this, An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and then vanished. Someone else said, The other car collided with mine without warning me of its intention. Another one says, I had been driving my car for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. Yeah, you might want to take a break somewhere in there. Someone else said, as I reached an intersection, the hedge just sprang up, obscuring my vision. I've had that happen before. Another man said, I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. <laughs> Not true of us, baby. I love your mother-in-law. My mother-in-law. Another one said, the, the, the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I just ran over him. <laughs> Someone else says the telephone pole was approaching fast. I attempted to swerve out of its path when my front struck its struck it, struck the front struck the front of it. Someone else said the the guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. And finally, the indirect cause of this accident was a little guy in a small car with a big mouth. Interestingly enough, we are all. Uh, Prone to make excuses, as was Gideon. But when we make excuses, what we're really doing is hindering God's usefulness for us. The story concludes essentially with Gideon uh, building an altar. We won't go through it, but what Gideon finally does is, you know the story, fire, poof, oh, you are God, okay, I'll submit to you. And what we see, uh, what we see him doing is building an altar on that spot to the Lord. And so he builds this first uh, altar, the first of the two altars. And by doing so, what he's showing is that he's surrendering to God. He's surrendering to God's will. He's saying, I will, I will be the deliverer at this point. I trust you. I'll get past my excuses. And I will do what you want me to do. And so the first altar of surrender, if you will, has been built to the Lord. But as we go on, the last section, verses 25 through 32, what we see is that something is still not right. You would kind of anticipate at this point uh, that the story would kind of move on and that you would get something like, and Gideon uh, gathered the troops and he mustered the army and he went on and he fought with the bad guys and he won. That's kind of what you would anticipate at this point. You anticipate that that's all. He got past his excuses. He's prepared now to be used for God. But that's not at all what we get. There's something still in the way. He has built one altar and surrendered to Yahweh. But remember, what was the reason that God's people were in bondage in the first place? It was because there were idols. It was because they were worshiping false gods. And what we're going to find is that God, out of pure grace, chooses Gideon, chooses a man who himself was an idol worshipper. He chooses a man who builds an altar an altar to Yahweh when, in the very same location, in his hometown, his own dad owned an altar to a foreign god. And so what we're going to see is that it's not enough just to build one altar in submission to God, but if you have other altars, if you have other gods, if you have other idols in your life, they have to be taken care of first before you can be useful for God. And so we see the story of the second altar that Gideon is going to build, starting in verse 25. So let's just do this. I want to read verses 25 through 27 and then comment briefly on it. The story continues. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull. Notice whose bull it was. Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. So it's his father's altar. And cut down the Asherah that is behind it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the ashra that you shall cut down. And so we see here um God uh, saying, you know what? It's not enough for you to have one altar. Build an altar of commitment to me when you have other altars in mind, when you have other deities. Do we have some do we have some pictures on our PowerPoint? No, okay, I didn't think so. Uh, I wanted to show some pictures, and I didn't get to it. But essentially, what we have here is there were idols, uh, Baal and Asherah, uh, at this point, and it was his father's. It was his father's idols, and so God calls this idolater, and He says, "You can't build one altar of commitment to Me when you have other." commitment. You can't serve me and serve other gods. Something has to happen. This is, this is not right. And so what he does uh, is he commands him to go ahead and to take a couple bulls. He says, take one most likely to help tear down this altar. And then he says, take a second bull and sacrifice it to me. Uh, build an altar in place of this idol altar and sacrifice it to me. This is significant, I think, that he says, take this bull. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's likely a sacrifice of atonement. In the Old Testament, what you see is that God called his people to several types of sacrifices. The one was a sacrifice of atonement. And they would take a bull and they would kill it. And essentially what it symbolized is it symbolized making atonement. It symbolized uh, the covering uh, of blood. It symbolized that that bull took on the sin of the people or of that person uh, to represent him and then was was killed uh, in behalf of that person because God takes sin very seriously and the penalty for sin is death. And so that sacrifice of atonement, which was a bull, was meant to be um, a way of covering that person's sin, a way of that person identifying with that bull, saying, I am guilty of sin, but there's a substitute and that bull is going to take my place. I think this is what God was calling Gideon to do. And that's really significant because Gideon was an idolater. He was sinful. He needed cleansing. He needed forgiveness. Consequently, we see that all of the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament point ahead towards the ultimate sacrifice, towards the ultimate Lamb of God, if you will, Jesus Christ himself, whose blood was um, way better than the blood of a bull or a goat of any of the Old Testament sacrifices, whose blood was able not just to cover sin, but to eradicate it, to, uh, to remove it, to forgive Sin, and so we see here that Gideon needed cleansing, he needed forgiveness, and so do we, so do we, and that doesn 't come through the blood of bulls but through the blood of jesus christ secondly it 's interestingly enough we see that he uh, we see that he took this bowl of, of atonement and not only did it foreshadow Jesus but Interestingly enough, the bull was kind of considered sacred to the Baal cult. Kind of like if you're familiar with Hinduism, they consider cows to be sacred so they don't eat them, right? In a very similar way, the bull was kind of a sacred animal to the Baal cult. And so, in kind of a backhanded way, what God was calling him to do was, in a very vivid and picturesque way, was to reject the idol in his life. Do you see that? He says, I want you to reject Baal as your God, because apparently he and his family had been worshiping not the true God, but this God. And so I think I missed verse 27. And so we're going to we're going to read that before we make, uh, make our next point. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And so that's the conclusion. God calls him to do this, to to take away his idol, and he does. He does it at night because he's a little afraid of the men and what their response is going to be. And we're going to see what that response is in just a second. But even still, you have to give the guy credit. I mean, he did it, right? He did it. But the point I want to make here is our second principle of preparation. We've seen our first principle of preparation, and we have to get past our excuses. The second principle of preparation that we see here is that we have to tear down our idol altars. We, like Gideon, have idol altars in our life. We worship um, the true God, but on occasion, sometimes more often than not, we worship other idols, other deities, other gods. Other things are more important in our life if you will. And so what this means for us is that we, um, like Gideon, have to draw a line in the sand. I don't know if you're familiar with that language. It comes, I believe, um, well it does because I'm from Texas. It comes from the Battle of the Alamo. Yeah. Familiar with the Battle of the Alamo? Anyone? Okay, it's history bus. Oh, seriously, come on. Texas, thank you. Everyone knows the Alamo. Good heavens. I'm in Illinois. Um, The Battle of the Alamo, real significant, at least to Texas history, maybe not to national history, but it's a big deal down south, where I come from. And the long story short, the Alamo is real significant because Santa Ana and his troops were um, coming up against Texas as uh, Texas was seeking to gain independence. Um, And the Alamo was a slaughter. Maybe you've seen the movie or maybe you haven't, but it was a slaughter. But it was very significant because they held off Santa Ana and his troops so that the Texans can rally the troops at San Jacinto and defeat the Mexicans. All that to say... From the Alamo, Alamo, we see that there was a man by the name of Colonel William Travis, who was apparently, uh, according to the accounts that we have, a brave man. And there's a story that uh, that says, essentially, he receives letters from these other Texas generals, and they say, sorry, no other troops are coming. You're there by yourself. You and your, I think it was about 200 men or so at the Alamo. And, and they have to, at that point, uh, he has to inform his troops. It's just going to be us. It's like 200 versus thousands. This is not a battle that we're going to win. And so as the story goes, legend, possibly truth, maybe legend, but we're going to say it's truth. Um, The story goes that he, he informs his men and he says, this is what is going to happen. So, this is a suicide mission. If you want to go, then you can go. You can leave in honor and it's going to be fine. But if you want to stay, if you want to fight, if you want to draw uh, the line in the sand, if you will, and make a decision, here's what I want you to do. And so as legend goes, he takes his sword and he, you know, ching, kind of draws a line literally in the sand and he steps over it and he says, if you're with me, then come to this side. And some people left, but some people, the majority, in fact, Came to his side. And so he drew the line in the sand. They had, at that moment, to make a decision. Are we going to stay and fight? Are we going to be faithful uh, to our allegiance to Texas? Or are we going to run away? This is, in my opinion, a line in the sand moment for Gideon. He has to decide. God says, okay, you built one altar to me, but there's an idol altar, and you can't worship both. So what are you going to do? There's a line in the sand. What are you going to do? Are you going to tear down this altar? So the principle for us is that we have to tear down idol altars. So I want to talk just briefly with you about idols. Um, we've talked about it before in the past, but uh, it's very clear that the, the principle here is that we can't worship God in something else. And so I want to ask, I want us to think just briefly in, 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 our, in our hearts and minds, what might be some of the idol altars that we build in our lives? Because we all have idols Uh, And we all build altars to them. We sacrifice for them. We orient our lives around them. Uh, We have idol altars, and they need to be torn down if we're going to be effective for God. So so what are they? And you may be thinking, man, I don't have any altars. There's not a little statue in my house or anything. I don't bow down to it. You know, there's no idols. But what we see is that idolatry in the Bible is not just an image it's what we give ourselves to. It's, uh, it's what some of the great theologians call uh, an idol of the heart. We have heart idols. Uh, in fact, one theologian says that our heart is an idol factory. It just produces idols because of our fallen nature. And so we all have idols. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we're better than these cultures, that we're better than the Israelites who bowed down to some Asherah pole, to some uh, image. No, we, we do this as well. In our hearts, we do this. And so what is an idol? An idol is essentially, it's essentially this. It's something or someone or some person or some idea that we give ourselves to, that we seek from it what we can only receive from God. An idol is something that we seek satisfaction, joy, purpose, uh, success, anything that God, only God can give us. And we seek that other that from something else, that is an idol. Um, Tim Keller has written quite extensively on idols, and he says that essentially what an idol is, is if it were to be taken away from you, your family, your friends, your spouse, your job, your looks, whatever it is, if it was was taken away from you, then life is purposeless. You want to throw yourself off a bridge. That's how you know it's an idol in your life. Because it's not just a good thing, It's the ultimate thing. And so we all have those things. And so my question here is, like Gideon, God calls us to tear down the idol altars in our life. And so what are they? I've mentioned a few of them. It can be anything. It can be anyone. It can be a concept. It can be an object. It can be a spouse, a child, a best friend. It could be your business. It could be your career, what you do. It could be your vocation. It could be your social standing in the community. It could be your looks it could be your spouse's looks it could be uh, the standard of, of standard of work your work ethic it could be your moral record even it could be how much you know it could be how much education you have it could be a social cause or a political cause maybe it may even be someone else's emotional need for you an idol can be anything anyone and we all have them our heart is an idol factory and so, what God calls us to do, if we truly want to be effective for Him, is to identify the altars that we have built to the idols in our life, and do exactly what Gideon does: Let's tear them down, Let's tear them down. The, the story concludes in verse twenty-eight through thirty-two. Um, we see that Gideon uh, takes some heat, if you will, for this decision. Let's go ahead and read the last part of this. Verse twenty-eight. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. Verse 29, And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Verse 30, Then the men of the town said to Joash, Gideon's father, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and has cut down the Asherah beside it. Very surprising twist in the story. This is how Joash's father responds. But Joash said to all who stood against him, that is his son, Will you contend for Baal or will you serve him? Excuse me, Or will you save him, whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. Continuing on. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. And the story concludes, therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. And so the story concludes with a really surprising twist. Remember, whose bulls were they? They were his father's bulls, prized possessions. Whose altar was it? The text specifically says that it was his father's altar. And so God asks him to tear down the family altar, if you will. And he does. And then his father comes to his defense. Apparently, Gideon's risk taking his faith. His conversion, if you will, his, uh, his uh, submission to God's call in his life apparently had some effect on his father because his father, in a, and again, just a huge twist, he actually defends him. And the point that I want to get at is the question, why? Why does Gideon's father defend him? I mean, this is astonishing. It's such a twist. You don't anticipate it at all. Why? Why? Well, it's found in the reasoning that his father gives. And to make a long story short, what his father essentially says is, um, if Baal really is a god, if he really has powers like we have been thinking he does, if he really can deliver and save and do everything that he says, then why doesn't he take care of this guy himself? If he's so big and if he's so powerful, he can contend with my son. He can kill my son. You don't have to do it. And essentially what he realizes, and this is uh, kind of preparing us for our third point, our third principle for preparation. Essentially what his father realized was this, that idols never deliver. That's what his father realized in that moment, that the idols in our lives never deliver what they promise. And this is what I mean. This particular idol, the idol of Baal, um, was a, a god of several things, but in that culture, what the idol of Baal, those who worshipped it, worshipped it, which apparently uh, Gideon and his father and the whole town and even the whole nation did, was the god of prosperity. So you worship this god, you worship this idol, and he's going to bless you, right? Things are going to go well. But not only that, but he became known as the idol of victory in war. So you go out to battle, you worship Baal, and you have victory. Okay. Verses 1 through 10. What was the status of Israel? Were they experiencing prosperity? No. Were they experiencing victory? No. And so here I think there's a revelation, and Gideon's father kind of puts two and two together and he's like, okay, this idol is supposed to give us prosperity and victory, but here we are hiding from the Midianites and all of our food is gone. We're hungry. This God, this idol, does not deliver what it promises and that is true of all idols and so this leads us to our third principle if we want to be prepared to be used of God just like Gideon is going to be next Sunday we have to realize this that idols never deliver on what they promise personal story and then a few other examples and we'll wrap up here um Personal example: um, If I were to think about idols in my life, and I'm sure there are many, and more than I know, uh, but I know in the past, especially coming from my college days, that uh, college sports could have been elevated in my life at certain times to an idolatrous level. And the reason I know this is because the idols always fail; they never deliver on what they promise. And so, the idol of my university, i.e., football team. Um, has not been delivering in the past five to ten years. <laughs> and so since it hasn't been delivering victory, prestige, all of the things that those of us who love sports so desperately want our team to do and to be, well, let's just say that my idol has been failing. Um, they've been terrible. <laughs> but but I, would, I would realize this because I would get so angry after a game, and Shelley would attest, that I would be grumpy like the whole day she'd be like, this is not going to happen anymore. <laughs> She's like, you can watch your football, but you can't be crabby with me the whole rest of the day. <laughs> and through that whole process, I think she helped me to realize that, you know, maybe that was to an idolatrous level for me. If my joy and my happiness for the rest of the day or the week for that matter was contingent upon a stupid football game, maybe, just maybe, that is an idol for me. And that's just one example. In more recent uh, affairs, uh, all of us, of course, have been affected to some degree by the economic downturn in the past two to three years. Uh, that It began in 2008. Not only was it in our country, but it was really a global economic crisis. Uh, in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about several men who, in his estimation, had the idol of money. Money, success, was their idol. That's what they lived for. And when their idol failed them... Like all idols eventually do, we see that it was the ultimate thing in their life and not just a good thing because of the way that they responded, because of the way that they responded when their idols failed them. He lists several things. I'm just going to read it to you. The former CFO of Freddie Mac, we're all familiar with that, hung himself in his basement. The CEO of Sheldon Good, a real estate auction firm, shoots himself in the head while at the wheel of his Jaguar. French money manager who had lost billions in the, in the Bernie Madoff, we all know about him, scandal, slits his wrists in his office. Danish senior exec of HSBC Bank is found hung in the wardrobe of his $1,000 a night suite in London. Bear Stearns' exactly. we're all familiar with Bear Stearns, learned that he would not be hired by Chase Morgan, so he OD'd on drugs and leapt from the 29th floor of his building. These are all dramatic examples, but they make the point when things, in this case money, prestige, power, position, becomes ultimate, and they're taken away. When our idols fail us, and life is no longer worth living, then you're in the throng of an idol. You're in the throng of an idol. And it makes the point that they always, they always fail us. So we're going to wrap up here. We're going to pray. We're going to sing songs of surrender. And what I want us to do is just take, just take a brief moment, a brief moment to consider what are the excuses that you're giving God? What are the idols in your life? What, what, what altars have you built to them? And how are they failing you? Confess, repent, repent. Turn from them. Ask God to reveal these things to you and then we'll respond in song. And so our musicians will come up. They're going to come up at this point. I'm going to pray and just have a quick moment of silence and we're going to pray and then we're going to respond in song. Father, we're so grateful uh, that you prepare men and women who are not qualified, who are incapable, um, who are unexpected, who are underachievers to do great things. And much like Gideon, Father, we are all underachievers. Father, there are things in our life we give you excuses that hinder our usefulness. Father, there are idols that we worship alongside the altar that we've built in our life to you. Father, we, um, we are disappointed with our idols because they fail us. They always do. We can only receive that which is good and great and meaningful and satisfying from you. And so I ask now in the moment of uh, quietness as we reflect and as we prepare to sing, Father, that you would be working on our hearts, that you would show us, God, uh, where we're looking for joy and meaning and value and significance other than you and how we've built altars in our life to that. I pray, Father, that stone by stone, step by step, we would tear down our altars and become useful for you. We ask it in Christ's name.